This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy tonight at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Ready? I was born ready. Welcome to an extraordinarily action-packed advisory opinions podcast today. I mean, Sarah, this might have more action than Sunday Night Football did last night. A relatively low bar. Last night was pretty tame. (laughs) It was pretty tame. It was pretty tame. Although I am absolutely going to be on pins and needles for Monday Night Football because I'm trailing Declan... Uh, owner of the morning mismatch fantasy football team by a total of 6.9 points. And my kicker is going tonight. So I need seven points for my kicker. That's it. David, do you know um, how many points my fantasy team got this week? Wasn't it in the 50s? It was in the 50s. (laughs) (laughs) It was tragic. And look, Yes, Kamara's on my team. He didn't play. I I made the bet that he would play, you know, okay. But just to be clear, even if I had gotten someone in for Kamara, it would have been in the 60s, low 60s. <laughs> so it, this was just an underperforming week. But David, we're wasting time. I know. Sorry, sorry. Okay, here's what we're going to do today. We're going to give you a SCOTUS preview, a brief SCOTUS preview. We're going to talk about some really interesting uh, CERT grants We're going to talk a tiny bit about cases argued today. We're going to give you an update on student debt, an update on student debt, update on student debt. We're going to talk about the Trump legal cases, and then we're going to talk about, um, it's not actually a court case, but it is just referred to in court case terms, Ho v. Yale, Judge Ho versus Yale Law School. And my goodness, has that triggered a lot of conversation. So... Yeah, Sarah, let's get started. Uh, The term started today. Two cases argued. Let's not go there first. What are you looking for and what are you looking forward to in this term? So, yeah, argument started today. We got a lot of the cert petitions handed down from that long conference, nine cases granted. We'll talk a little bit more about a couple of those. Arguments were open to the public today as well, though the court itself is not going to be open to the public, you know, for like tours and um, non-argument wanderings. Uh, And let's just run through some of those big cases. So we have... Harvard and North Carolina affirmative action cases. Yep. We have the Voting Rights Act redistricting in Alabama, 
where uh, basically one of the districts is majority minority. And the argument is whether you have to do race conscious redistricting in order to meet with the requirements of the Voting Rights Act or whether, in fact, you can't do race conscious redistricting. Um, A lot of people previewing that as the, quote, end of the Voting Rights Act. We will definitely be talking about that a lot when we get to oral argument. I disagree with that headline. Uh, (laughs) A case that hasn't gotten a lot of attention at all, but I think this term is so interesting because of sort of the racial um, overtones, is this Indian adoption case and whether states can have racial preferences for adoption. Now, in this case, it's not a racial preference exactly. It's a tribal membership preference. Um, But still, I'll be watching that case. It seems like nobody else is. There's the independent state legislature case, more. And everybody's watching that. Everybody's watching that one. I think it could actually end up being pretty narrow and that that one could be actually the most overwatched case in a lot of ways, but we'll see. And then 303 Creative, Masterpiece Cake Shop Revisited is another way to think of that. That's the woman who designs websites. She says she's happy to serve gay customers, but simply doesn't want to design a website for a gay wedding. Um, It really is Masterpiece Cake Shop Revisited. Masterpiece Cake Shop, remember, gets sent down because the state board of blah, blah, blah showed hostility to the Masterpiece Cake Shop owner. In this case, we've gotten rid of the hostility and now we can simply look at the First Amendment factors. And then in terms of cert grants and waiting cert grants, we've talked obviously about those social media bill cases. We're still waiting to hear on those, Florida and Texas. Again, husband of the pod represents uh, in the Texas case. Uh, He represents Google and Facebook. Uh, Well, the, the... Net choice. Net choice. Yes. Yes. This is is how much we talk about it. (laughs) Let me tell you who your husband's client is, Sarah. I don't remember the client's name. (laughs) It's possible husband of the pod and I talk about other things. (laughs) But today, David, of those nine cert grants, two are kind of along those lines. And I know coins only have two sides, so it's a little silly to say um, these are all other sides of the same coin. But But like, it's a three-sided coin, David, in this analogy. So on the one side of our three-sided coin, you've got these social media bill cases that say a social media company above a certain size um, cannot moderate for viewpoint. Yep. But one involves Section 230 and one involves the Anti-Terrorism Act. The Section 230 case is Google, YouTube, et cetera. And the Anti-Terrorism Act is Twitter. David, why don't you talk us through the Google YouTube case? Yeah, so this is a case uh, basically born out of the terror attacks in Paris. And this is, uh, so essentially the case, the question here is, did YouTube, by essentially, as the case argues, sort of feeding content through um, algorithms and recommended videos, et cetera. So did YouTube essentially promote um, terrorist content to such an extent that it had an influence on the attacks themselves or it had an influence on the attackers, not necessarily on the, you know, the tactics of the attack, but had an influence on the attackers. And here's what's different about this case. Now, we'll, we'll talk a lot more about it. Just granted, haven't had a whole lot of time to dive in, but I did want to highlight uh, one thing about this. If you followed these fights over 
Facebook, Twitter, social media, you've probably heard the phrase publisher versus platform a bunch. And it's always kind of made me a little bit crazy because all of these social media companies are both publisher. In other words, they, they publish and create their own content and platform in that they platform other people's content. And so just like I say, the New York Times with the comment section is both publisher, it publishes its own New York Times content and platform. It platforms uh, commenters who publish their own content. The Dispatch is a publisher and a platform. Um, so, But that's always been sort of the, the lingo that's used. And then the question is, how if does moderation make you always a publisher if you're moderating content on the platform? Okay, that's a little bit complicated way of talking through this. In section 230, it says, no, you're not a publisher if you moderate other people's content. Okay, short preview. But the YouTube case is a little bit different. The YouTube case is saying, but what if your algorithm or whatever technical means or human choice says, we're going to promote. So here's the other P word, publisher, platform, promoter. What if you promote certain content and that content by algorithm or whatever means keeps popping into people's feeds? Does Section 230 grant immunity in that circumstance? Now, so um, again, I'm going to be diving a lot more into this case uh, because I think it's a fascinating case. But it is interesting and different uh, because the ultimate at the end of the day, the goal here isn't to have more content on the platforms. So that's, you know, if you're talking about the goal of, say, the Texas or Florida social media laws, they want more stuff up, more stuff. Um, what they're saying here is you put more stuff up and then you promoted some of it and some of it was really dangerous and led to an attack. So that's one of the distinctions here. And that's why this three-sided coin is fascinating to me because it actually kind of um, mirrors in some respects the political debate where both sides want the tech companies to do something different. Right. The opposite, but it ends up with the tech companies losing a lot of cases. So this brings me to the Twitter lawsuit, as I mentioned, also terrorism related, but this involves section uh, 2333 of the Anti-Terrorism Act. And uh, it says that if you are injured by an act of international terrorism that is committed, planned, or authorized by a designated foreign terrorist, an organization, uh, sorry, uh, foreign terrorist organization, you may sue any person who, quote, aids and abets by knowingly providing substantial assistance or who conspires with the person who committed such an act of international terrorism. And the question here is that, did Twitter take down enough content? So here was the QP that the court accepted. Whether a defendant that provides generic, widely available services to all its numerous users and regularly works to detect and prevent terrorists from using those services knowingly provided substantial assistance under Section 2333 merely because it allegedly could have taken more meaningful or aggressive action to prevent such use. So again, David, like the, the social media bills coming out of Texas and Florida moderate less, 
This Twitter lawsuit coming out of the Ninth Circuit where Twitter largely loses, moderate more. And the Texas and Florida, well, just Texas, I guess, um, social media bill case went up to the Supreme Court on an emergency posture once already. It was decided 5-4, but Kagan was in the dissenting four. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that was on the merits. I think that was on the emergenciness of it. And so in some ways, you can think of that as a 6-3 sendback from the Supreme Court. Here, David, on the other side of that, the Ninth Circuit, again, finds against Twitter, saying that they should have moderated more. And the Supreme Court just accepted cert, which, as we know, means a high likelihood of overturning the lower court. And when it's the Ninth Circuit, it's sort of a bonus extra overturning of the lower court, which means I think they will, again, say... Um, here, nope, they don't need to moderate more. And, you know, so here's the QP. I love how, you know, you bring in like actual Supreme Court lingo into the into the podcast. Question presented, uh, does section, this is in the Google YouTube case, does section 230 immunize interactive computer services when they make targeted recommendations of information provided by another information content provider? or only limit the liability of interactive computer services when they engage in traditional editorial functions, such as deciding whether to display or withdraw with regard to such information. Uh, so yeah, you're, what you're talking about, what we're talking about here is, should they have censored more? That is the question at issue in these cases, whereas Texas and Florida are demanding that social media companies censor and moderate less and so this is a interesting – now, the YouTube case is not just um, censor more, but should they have suppressed? I do think the promoting thing makes that unique and interesting and not exactly along that political moderation line. Yeah, yeah, but interesting. But from the line of Texas-Florida social media bill on the right – to this Twitter case on the left, let's say, there's a really good chance that both lose. Now, the, te the, the YouTube one, I think, has enough distinctives that you could have a potentially a ruling against YouTube, yep. depending on the facts of the case, about how much does this algorithm actually promote content in such a way that it's actually YouTube. This is YouTube's, this is a joint venture <laughs> between YouTube and the content creator in pushing stuff out. Uh, and that actually opens a really interesting can of worms because, you know, this is one of the ways in which um, a social media company can potentially, um, it's not exactly, it's not the same as removing content, but if they remove it from the algorithmic, algorithmic operation that leads certain kinds of content to bubble up to the surface based on your preferences, and they remove it from that, it, it functionally from a lot of feeds just disappears. It's just not there. Or, I mean, the two things that I would like to see happen are age limits like we have on tobacco and alcohol and an algorithmic limit. Like, I, they make a lot of money on the like, addiction side of this, which the addiction side to me is the algorithm that promotes stuff that you know you, they know you're interested in. And so you're constantly continuing to scroll because the next thing might be even more interesting. And if it reverted back to the timeline function where it is simply the, the you know, you follow certain people and you're going to see the next thing. Now, this gets weirder with YouTube where it's not, you know, you do follow channels, but 
it would change the business model, but I actually don't think that it would violate uh, any legal restrictions if Congress, for instance, wanted to pass that. Again, age limit and then um, like algorithmic sort of addiction management. But that's where the Google case is far more interesting than the other two cases because we're going to see whether that already is required. Because David, even if they they find against YouTube in this case, it's not really that YouTube can then say, great, we're removing all this content from the algorithm. They would have done that anyway if they had seen it. So that's not going to be an option. It's going to have to be like, okay, well then you can't use that algorithm anymore. You can't promote content unless you've seen all the content, which is it possible. In which case, yeah. the whole YouTube model really changes dramatically. So yeah, all three of these cases, and remember the Texas and Florida cases have not been granted cert yet. There's still some, a lot of percolating going on, frothing, if you will. Um, interestingly, Texas did not oppose net choice in wanting to stay the mandate. Uh-huh. We can talk strategy another time, David, but um, really interesting that Texas didn't want to stay the mandate. Now, a Fifth Circuit judge could still sua sponte move for an en banc vote. Let me break that down in English, not Latin. Uh, so any Fifth Circuit judge who's an active non-senior judge can simply say, I want to hear this case with all of the Fifth Circuit judges. And then it comes up for a vote and a majority of the Fifth, active Fifth Circuit judges would have to say that, yes, they want to hear this case. You could see that going from either side, by the way, that some of the judges who very much agree with Judge Oldham's lower court opinion want to come out the same way, but think there's a better way to write it, for instance, which you and I sort of talked about a little, David. Or, of course, the other side saying, wow, according to this now Fifth Circuit precedent, it says that we check original public meaning before Supreme Court precedent. I don't think that's a good idea. Let's take it on bonk. Um, so that yeah. could still happen. But, and they could ignore, not ignore, they could disagree with the decision to stay the mandate in which case this goes up on emergency to the Supreme Court regardless, even if both sides agree they want the mandate stayed. Lots that can still happen um, in that Texas case. We'll so how did you, just let, let's take a short uh, strategy diversion here. Yeah. How did you interpret the decision not to oppose the state? Because I have my interpretation. Should I go first? Yeah. Okay. They've already lost at the Supreme Court. Okay. They lost. We know it was 5-4, probably really, truly on the merit 6-3. I think they're forecasting another loss, potentially. And if you don't stay the mandate, you're asking for a very rapid turnaround, uh, maybe 6-3 this time, slap on the wrist, and a pretty quick kind of defeat. Whereas I feel like if you do stay the mandate... You're going to allow more time. It's just going to give you more time to argue this time. It's different. It's just a delaying action. One of the, th one of the principles of litigation tactics is if you feel like you're going to lose, you want to delay. If you feel like you're going to win, you want to press. <laughs> so That's fascinating, David, because I have been so convinced that Texas thinks they win at the Supreme Court. Interesting. So yours makes a lot of sense. You never know, right? Like delay as mm -hmm. long as you can. Um, maybe you change 
someone's mind. Maybe some of these other cases move the needle. I, I like that, except, except the underlying premise for it doesn't sound right to me. But that they already lost once. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they already lost once. I hear you. And yeah. So now that if you know you're going to lose, you're going to want to delay. I'm talking about the ultimate loss. If you're I know, thinking, I know, yeah, yeah, but. But yeah, if you think the Supreme Court is the death knell of your case, as currently constituted under the current conditions, you're you've got a lot of in, you you've got some incentives to delay here. So anyway, yeah, fair enough. Just just absolute armchair quarterbacking. I like one, it. One last one last other thing before we move on from uh, the sort of SCOTUS preview. I filed an amicus brief in one of the cases, three hundred three creative, and I'm gonna we'll we'll put a link to it in the show notes. And we'll talk more about that when the argument rolls around, because there's a lot to say about that case. But why would I file an amicus brief? Well, two reasons. One, I'm still a licensed lawyer, and every now and then I want to write a brief, you know, just to sort of keep a toe in the water. And number two, the underlying issue here, the underlying free speech issue is one that is was a subject of litigation throughout much of my career, and I kind of want to see the issue through to its resolution. And so... The, and again, the issue here is actually the other side of the coin of a lot of the uh, conflicts that we're seeing in, say, Florida Stop Woke Act. Whether you can, you know, to what extent can anti-discrimination law be used to compel or prohibit the otherwise constitutionally protected speech of private entities? And so this is a fascinating case, and we'll talk a lot more about it later. Okay, David, before we leave the Supreme Court, two cases were argued today. Actually, they're being argued as we tape this, to be clear for listeners. Um, one is a WOTUS case, though, and this is like a once-in-future WOTUS case. WOTUS, waters of the United States, like POTUS or VPOTUS or SCOTUS. <laughs> we do a lot of Otises. Uh, but WOTUS has been bouncing up and down for 15 years now. So these are lovely people in Idaho who've bought a home or bought some land that they wanted to have a home on. And the water is not connected to the nearby lake, but the EPA says, you know, it's close enough and they can kind of share tributaries. The homeowners are arguing for a sort of WOTUS principle that like it needs to be contiguous water. The water needs to actually feed in like sort of a waterway, if you will, not just like adjacent water that could run through the ground or something like that. They're saying there's no limiting principle if you just simply say it's water that doesn't need to touch a waterway of the United States. The other case, David, <laughs> I just sort of get a tickle out of, um, I guess, in some ways. And this is the MoneyGram case. So 8%, 8% of Delaware's state budget, hundreds of <laughs> millions of dollars, comes from people not claiming their money grams. What? Yeah. What? <laughs> Isn't that wild? And That's amazing. Yeah, so the question is, uh, whose money is this? And about 49 other states would like to say it's not Delaware's. When their citizens don't claim the money, it belongs to them. But Delaware's like, oh, MoneyGram's incorporated here, so all your bases are belong to us. Uh, and so this will be a question over what are MoneyGrams? 
Are they like traveler's checks? Everyone kind of agrees it's not that. Are they like money orders? Hard to say. And so that's what they are arguing about as we speak. That is amazing. I 8%. Claim your money, guys. Claim your money. <laughs> it's just kind of wild when you, I mean, and you have to kind of get into the details of, um, the 1974 Disposition of Abandoned Money Orders and Travelers Checks Act. But yeah, money order, travelers checks, or other similar written instrument other than a third-party bank check go to the state in which the financial instrument was purchased. And then around and around we go. Wow. That's, that's fascinating. Okay, I, and I was making fun of the MoneyGram cases in Slack. I, I hadn't read them yet. I thought I you were serious. Joking. I didn't know you were joking. No, I was totally joking. As soon as I saw the word MoneyGram, I thought, I'll, I'll look at that later. No, I, when the, when David the decision was like, oh, comes and we'll talk about the MoneyGram case. And I was like, yeah, we will. And he was joking, <laughs> and I was serious. Um, David, normally we're on such mind meld. I know, I know. I'm so sorry. I just saw MoneyGram, and I thought, well, I'll just pocket that for now. It's a gazillion so. dollars. When it turns out that Delaware had pocketed that for now. That's but anyway, right. Yes. But wait, one thing, David. Do you know what it's called? This this principle of claiming uh, abandoned or unclaimed property within a state's borders? No. Escheatment. E-S-C-H-E-A-T-M-E-N-T. So it's like E-S-cheatment. Escheatment. Now, are we sure we're pronouncing that correctly? Because you know what will happen. Absolutely not sure. And it's uh, <laughs> clearly my like joking, shaming of other people mispronouncing things has been so lost on multiple podcast platforms that I will never do it again. Um, but it is the legal principle. Uh, of a I mean, we have the greatest listeners in the world, unless and until we mispronounce words. Yeah, then they're kind I, of horrible. <laughs> <laughs> then I, <laughs> then I, I'm still reeling from Belknap Gate. That's been years, which, David. You need to get over it. That's, I'm two, it's two plus years when I mispronounced the name of, I called Belknap, Belknap, and hell was unleashed upon me. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Shall we move on to Trump and the special master and the 11th Circuit and Judge Eileen Cannon and oh my gosh. Okay, so this is also like a Trump legal problems review episode. Yes. So I just want to run through the three cases that we're watching here. Well, let me tell you about the case we're not watching. The January 6th DOJ slash January 6th committee investigation. So we know the January 6th committee sent over a criminal referral to DOJ. And as I think I've covered before, David, you can send over a criminal referral yeah. to DOJ. DOJ doesn't care whether you think a crime has been committed. Now, if you have new facts or evidence of a crime and you can send that over in your referral, that's great. But it's not the criminal referral that made that meaningful. It's the new facts um, and evidence that you have. We don't know really what the January 6th committee has sent over to DOJ. Um, 
So I'd say like, I'm aware of that, but not, I would not consider that something we're following because as far as I know, there's not a whole lot to follow. Okay, here's what we are following. One, the Department of Justice investigation into the removal of classified material to Mar-a-Lago. Absolutely, right? And update on that is that, if you remember, the special master, Deary, um, said, hurry up and... Also, tell me, Trump team, if you actually want to dispute any of the inventory here, i.e. you're claiming stuff was planted, let me know which things you think are planted and what evidence you may have for that. (laughs) Um, And remember, originally, the... the lower court, or the, rather the district judge who sent this all to the special master said that she wasn't excluding classified material. The 11th circuit then comes out and is like, oh, yes, you are. You must have misunderstood law. Absolutely, the classified documents are not included. Here's the great quote from the 11th circuit. Yeah. For our part, which was two Trump appointees and one Obama appointee writing per curiam unanimously here, by the way. For our part, we cannot discern why plaintiff would have an individual interest in or need for any of the 100 documents with classification markings. Just to clarify, David, it was per curiam with no dissents. You never know with per curiam whether it's technically unanimous. That's true. Okay, sorry. But you know at least there was one Trump-appointed judge who voted that way, because you have to have two out of three to have a PC. Yes. And there were no noted dissent, so I think it is fair to assume that it's unanimous, but technically we don't know that. Thank you. Thank you. We like technical accuracy. (laughs) Yes, thank you. (laughs) That was like the most actually of this podcast, hopefully. Uh, Okay, so now District Judge Cannon, the one who has this case, um, just uh, decided that the special master that she appointed is wrong on several fronts says, no need to hurry up, take all the time you want. She doesn't actually say all the time, but much longer than the special master had given them. And you absolutely do not need to look at any inventory or dispute any property at this point. Really making one wonder what the purpose of a special master is. If the special master says something, then immediately the district judge simply disputes it. This will all provide nice fodder for that appeal that is going up to the 11th Circuit. So DOJ goes up in an emergency posture on those classified documents. They are currently up on the appointment of the special master at all. And the fact that the special master is serving zero purpose, as far as I can tell, because the district judge is ruling herself on every one of these ministerial questions about the plan, and this is the special master's plan. And it's not that she doesn't have the authority to do it. She absolutely does. The special master is a creation of hers. But why do you need a special master if you're doing that? So that's where that case is. Well, can can I say one word about the old special master here? Of course. So I feel like that what's happened with the special master is that you're seeing what happens when Newsmax talking points meet a judge who doesn't give a rip about sort of like politics, the magnitude of the case, and it's just sort of like, all right, this is a case in front of me with a person. And you're, you're making what arguments now? Wait a minute. Here's the problem. I think Judge Deary... Um, I've, I've told you I think it's weird that he is acting as a judge in this case and refers to himself as the court, but set that aside, he seems to be incredibly smart and fair-minded about all of this and taking his role seriously. But at the point 
that you put out a plan to review these documents and then the district judge goes line by line changing your plan, I do think that at some point, maybe not this point exactly, that the special master probably resigns. Yeah. Yeah. Like what, what is it, you know, it's the, who am I, why am I here? Admiral Stockdale moment. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed. Yes. Okay. Next. Next. We have the New York attorney general lawsuit against the Trump organization. This is a civil lawsuit, not criminal. In some ways, then the jeopardy, if you will, is far less and it will get, um, such attention on this podcast as that may warrant it being far less jeopardy and only about money, right, for the Trump organization. On the other hand, as others have pointed out, this is sort of the lifeblood of the Trump family is the Trump organization, so maybe we should take it more seriously. Eh, I'm kind of torn. But I do think it's relevant that Attorney General Barr, who again has said, like, those documents, those classified documents shouldn't have been at Mar-a-Lago, and like, absolutely, this is all very illegal, Um, So on the one hand, it's not, he's held back no punches on Donald Trump. He has in fact written a whole book about it. He said that he thinks that this New York lawsuit is kind of BS, that it clearly is politicized. And what he points to for that, that I think I tend to agree with, is that it was not a lawsuit against Donald Trump and the Trump Organization. It was a lawsuit against Donald Trump, the Trump Organization, and Trump's adult children about Trump's personal financial disclosure. And you read the lawsuit and there's just nothing that I saw tying Trump's children to the sort of knowledge and willfulness required over Trump's personal financial disclosure. And so why would you include the children except to make a splash, more headlines? And what I would say to uh, Letitia James and the New York Attorney General's office is, if, if your point was to hurt Donald Trump versus help your own political career, you've made a huge mistake. The last thing you want is to muddy these waters with a case that has some strengths, but a lot of weaknesses, and allow them to pick which case they're going to argue in the public and make it this case and make it look like, oh, now there's so many cases we can't keep track of them. Eh, they're all just after Trump. Huge political mistake on that side. So this is the classic anti-Trump mistake, I think. And and I I largely agree with you. And the classic anti-Trump mistake goes like this. Trump commits wrongful acts that on a scale of one to 10 are maybe an eight or maybe a nine. Um, Now, January 6th, it's more than a nine. But let's just, anyway, Trump commits wrongful acts that are maybe an eight, maybe a nine. Then somebody says, they're an 11 and acts accordingly. And so all of Trump's defenders say, this is persecution. It's not an 11 and never deal with the eight or nine misconduct. But by going for saying it's an 11, you're fighting over the overreach. Then you end up battling over, defending, fighting over what is an overreach And then you never actually get to the underlying troubling facts that are there to begin with. And, you know, if you look at the lawsuit, there's a lot of squirrely behavior that is outlined there. There's a lot of behavior over inflation of, 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 you know, real estate values, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think that the the, the classic mistake here, and it's one that sort of the Trump defenders have seized on 
constantly is the overreach. It is, oh, it's much worse than you think it is. Or this, this thing that is actually bad is actually worse has led to a lot of miscalculations, has led to a lot of misdirections. And ironically and sadly enough, and, and this is sort of a problem with our, our discourse, often then leaves the underlying actually troubling con- uh, conduct unaddressed. Yes, and rinse, repeat, right? Okay, last case that we're going to sort of just touch on. Again, it feels like it's just the start of a new year, David. We've got to like run through all the previews of SCOTUS, of Trump world. So the last case is this Georgia state case. This is a criminal case about whether Trump violated Georgia state election law in pressuring officials to change the vote in the 2020 election. This, you know, very much turns on that Raffsenberger call where he says, just find me the votes, but there's plenty of other stuff. They've done subpoenas of lots of people, like all the people have been subpoenaed. And um, two things, David. One, Lindsey Graham has been fighting a subpoena in that case for a long time now. And we talked about how uh, Texas filed an amicus brief that I thought was strange in the special master case, because Mm -hmm. what is Texas's interest in the special master case? And they sort of wrote it up as like, our interest is to let you know that these people are bad people and they're not forthcoming litigators. I thought that was strange that like, you could just weigh in and say like, I don't like to litigate against these parties in a totally unrelated case from the one that I'm in. Yeah. But David, they also filed an amicus in this Lindsey Graham subpoena fight. Same thing, right? Joined by a bunch of other states. And that amicus brief, I thought, was actually very well done. Now, I don't know that they made arguments different from the ones that Lindsey Graham himself made, but Texas actually does have an interest in the outcome of a case that turns on the speech and debate privilege and uh, the speech and debate clause in the Constitution. There's cases on speech and debate clause, but it's a little like executive privilege, there's wild West territory on the speech and debate clause that can feel a little like it's whatever's in your heart. Uh, And so speech and debate clause in the most traditional sense, for instance, is that the executive can't through their, you know, police powers, arrest a member of Congress on their way to a vote because they're on their way to a vote. That's a, that's a core legislative action. And otherwise that could be abused by the King slash president in this case. But then it's like, okay, where else is that? So there was a famous case about, um, I think his name's William Jefferson, the Louisiana guy who was uh, keeping bribes in his freezer. Do you remember that one, David? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, so they, the FBI raided his congressional office and he was like, blah, speech and debate clause. And <laughs> courts absolutely sided with him in that. Now he was still convicted because the money in his freezer was elsewhere and there was plenty of other evidence. But all of the stuff that they took from his congressional office had to be returned and could not be used in the investigation because that was core legislative work. And the question around Lindsey Graham in this Georgia case is, yep, he was making phone calls that day to Georgia officials. Maybe he talked to the president. Was he acting in a core legislative manner? And his argument, which I got to say, David, I find it pretty compelling, is that you do. I do. I do. Mm. I'm sorry. He had mm. he, he was voting on whether to certify the election and therefore those calls you don't get to inquire into 
because he was collecting legislative information on how he should vote on that certification. I'm not saying I like it, David, but I'm saying that on speech and debate clause stuff, that pretty closely follows for me. Mm. David is pondering. He has his finger on his cheek <laughs> and he's, he's stroking his beard. Uh, yeah, I think when I, when I read it, I was thinking, really, you're classifying Lindsey Graham's activities in Georgia as an investigation? What? Because I think the entire claim is this was not, in fact, an investigation at all. And what this was, in fact, was is a pressure campaign. And it was a pressure campaign as part of a larger criminal scheme to induce election fraud, fraud in violation of Georgia criminal statutes. Now, I, I can imagine a scenario, Sarah, where you're right. You're right. Lindsey Graham's on the phone with his in-house, you know, with with his uh, with the count, maybe committee counsel. You know, they're talking about we're wanting to investigate certain specified uh, alleged irregularities. Can we schedule a time for a hearing? That's a very different thing than what seems to have transpired. So it seems like we're recasting a pressure campaign as just asking questions. So but here's the problem, because this all turns around deposing, you know, interviewing uh, Lindsey Graham. The only way you can know the answers to some of those questions is by knowing the answers to some of those questions and the speech and debate clause may prevent you from asking the questions in the first place, unless mm, you have yeah. evidence that he violated the law himself, which nobody is claiming. It's different than if you right. charged Lindsey Graham and had evidence and a grand jury had indicted him for this, we'd be having a different conversation. But can you subpoena a senator to ask him whether he was acting as a senator that day? How else are you going to do that other than asking questions that would elicit answers that clearly fall under the speech and debate clause? And then the question is, are we actually going to sit there and parse which questions you can ask? Or is the speech and debate clause broad enough that so much of this goes to the heart of a legislative question that you don't get to do it in the first place? So I would agree with you if you're beginning the investigation by saying, let's talk to Lindsey Graham first. Okay. I, I know. You're yeah. This this is gonna be a pretty fact heavy. Yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. Case. Exactly. But I yeah. do like this it's line interesting. from the Texas uh amicus brief. Regardless of what one thinks of the underlying merits of the accusation that the grand jury seeks to investigate, about which Amiki take no position. Really? None. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Uh, that cannot be enough to overcome a 500-year-old legislative prerogative that finds its roots in the history of conflict between the commons and the Tudor and Stuart monarchs during which successive monarchs <laughs> utilize the criminal and civil law to suppress and intimidate critical legislators. I just, I mean, anything that goes back to the Tudors, I'm, I'm all in. Well, you know, can, I know listeners, tell me if I'm wrong here. Tell me if I'm wrong. This is the Battle of Bosworth Field all over again, David. I, I know, I know. I'm so, I'm just <laughs> thinking out loud. Have we had a period in American judicial history where the period of British history running from the 1200s, which the Bruin, the gun rights case, went all the way back to the 1200s, from the 1200s through the 17th century has been more relevant in American public debate? Fun times. Yeah. Okay, last thing on this case, David, still on the Georgia case. Mm -hmm. You have said, and I agree, that when it comes to the actual 
legal jeopardy in a criminal case for Donald Trump, this case has a lot more legs than any other case. Now, I'm curious if you've changed your mind as the Mar-a-Lago classified documents have moved forward. I will say that I have not because I think actually where that case has moved forward is on the obstruction side and you still have the underlying, you know, prudential question of should you charge a former president when the national security threat is over, you've got the classified documents back and we're talking about obstruction at that point. Um, Even as they get more evidence on the obstruction side, I think the prudential question leans heavily the other way when it's an obstruction charge. All right. So in Georgia, I have agreed with you that I think that criminal case is on the merits not on sort of these like external obstruction-y things. On the merits, very strong. But David, Dan Abrams, the ABC uh, legal correspondent, made a compelling argument to me in the green room the other day that I just <laughs> think is, I've, I've thought about it now, I have debated it with, with friends, and I just, I can't figure out any other way around it. Which is? Okay, let's hear it. So he's not made this argument publicly. This is not a public argument. Uh, He mentioned it on ABC this week. We were on a legal panel together and sort of did a back and forth um, on it briefly. And and he mentioned this, but we had a much longer conversation uh, in the green room that at the point that there's an indictment brought, I think that will get challenged in federal court. And it will raise this question for the first time, really, of whether district attorneys, the you know 900 plus that are running around yeah. the country, can indict former presidents for actions that they took while in office. Because our constitution's pretty clear that you can impeach a president for actions they took in office. And then we sort of leave open the question of whether you can charge them with a crime after they've been impeached. But you end up in a really weird situation where, you know, a whole bunch of district attorneys can now each charge former presidents they don't like of a different political party for official acts, and that maybe that is held only by, A, the power of Congress to impeach the president, and then post-impeachment, the power of the federal government to charge a former executive for presidential actions. And if so, the Georgia case has problems. I respect the heck out of Dan, but he's got to show me his work on that one. Like, it seems to be entirely a prudential argument, right? Well, it's kind of a core separation of powers. We think of separation of powers most often in terms of the three federal branches, but there's still separation of powers, of course, between states and the federal government and sort of the supremacy of the feds over states. But I agree there's a large prudential aspect, which is when Joe Biden leaves office, we don't want him indicted in a whole bunch of different jurisdictions. He has to defend himself in all those jurisdictions. That's silly for official acts. Now, you can say what Trump did was not an official act while he was president. Happy to get into that debate. I actually don't think we want to draw that line too finely. Um, You know, okay, he murdered someone in Fulton County in broad daylight while he was president. Is that an official act? Look, I get it. There's extremes you can take of this. Um, yeah. But in this case, I don't think... That Traitor, I sentence you to death. Right? Is that a... Yeah. Right. <laughs> and pulls the trigger. Right. Is that an official act? But <laughs> yeah. in this case, um, I, I think that 
and I've said this all along, right? I think that this gets very messy when you say that a president, for instance, um, calling and putting pressure on other officials while he's president. Like, so is LBJ guilty of this? I mean, every president puts pressure on other legislators, federal, state, et cetera, to do what they want. Again, I think you know how I feel about the underlying merits of this, obviously. Yeah, this is totally different from the Rick Perry indictment in Travis County. Um, Is it? Yes, indeed it is. (laughs) It is completely different because if you're looking at the Georgia solicitation to commit uh, electoral fraud statute, what you're talking about is not putting pressure on someone to do a legal act that you would want them to do. You're putting pressure on them to do an illegal act. And in the course of that, threatening an illegal prosecution of the person if they fail to commit an illegal act. So there is this really interesting, I think, meta question that sort of goes to this. How much does the president or members of Congress, when it comes to the speech and debate clause, how much does their office that they, while they hold it, and then the fact that they held it, sort of remove them from the operations of the rule of law that apply to every other citizen in every other circumstance in American law? How much is that? And I am on the very low side of that. I am on the basic view that says, you are only removed from the operation of the rule of law to the extent that you are explicitly removed from the operation of the rule of law. There is no implicit removal from the operation of the rule of law. You are a, right now you are Donald J. Trump. You are not President Trump. You're Donald J. Trump, and you did some things that are right in violation of an unquestionably constitutional state criminal uh, statute. And if the answer is, don't indict him because, well, that could open a can of worms if other prosecutors are maybe corrupt or politically motivated, et cetera. That's a prudential question. That's not a legal question. So, David, let me change your hypothetical here. All right. The president calls a senator to pressure them to vote a certain way on a piece of legislation that the president knows is unconstitutional and that a court later finds is unconstitutional. Is that not similar in many respects to your thing about a president doing something they know to be unlawful? He took an oath to uphold the Constitution. And there are numerous examples of this. And I can start with, for instance, the Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act, where President Bush's signing statement said that he thought it was an unconstitutional act, and he signed it anyway. The hypo, the non-hypo, the, the real-o yeah. of the, the truth-o of the matter <laughs> in, the, in the Georgia situation is applicable criminal statute violate. So in other words, he's seeking to induce a criminal act and that he is seeking to um, and threatening another criminal act. Yeah, but you're saying that you're you're assuming the conclusion, right? Like you're saying it's criminal because you think it's criminal. And in my situation, I'm saying it is unlawful. And so, yeah, pressuring someone to break the law by signing something you know to be unlawful. How is that? Again, like don't assume the premise. Donald Trump didn't think he was pressuring them to do something unlawful. No, no, no. So, the, but under your hypo, there's no criminal law. In, in play. So you have civil remedies for that, and you also have an impeachment remedy for that. Um, so the question here is, a cri- if you're implicating criminal law, if he called, if he called and he said, I know that, um, you know, I know this campaign finance reform is unlawful, 
and unconstitutional. But if you don't vote for it, FBI is going to be at your door. Okay, put the man in jail. Put the man in jail. You don't think LBJ did that? That LBJ said, I'm going to have you arrested unless you vote for. I'm not sure that he did. But if he did, he would be criminally liable after he got out of office and maybe in in it, because I'm not entirely convinced by that OLC OLC memo that says you're (laughs) immune from prosecution while you're in office. So, Oh, I am very convinced by that. Okay, we'll continue this conversation. Let's put a pin in it. Our sponsor for this episode is Pilot.com, accountants specializing in small law firms. Pilot's team of full-time U.S.-based accountants takes your firm's bookkeeping off the plate, and their fractional CFOs help you run a more efficient firm, increasing utilization and reducing revenue locked up in receivables. So if you're looking for a thought partner who can make your firm more profitable, or if you just want someone to do the work right, check them out at Pilot.com slash advisory opinions. That's Pilot.com slash advisory opinions. I don't want to give short shrift to Ho v. Yale. Do you want to do the setup? Yes. So the setup here is really, really simple. Um, To the chagrin of some of our listeners, we have covered in depth the drama at Yale Law School. Not to dive too deep into it, let's just say that Yale Law School has been uh, a quite intolerant place, has imposed a number of double standards on the Federalist Society, Um, has created an environment that has been extraordinarily miserable for many conservative students there, um, has permitted a degree of misconduct that would be utterly unacceptable, that they would no doubt find utterly unacceptable if engaged in by the right. Let's just assume for the sake of argument that we're not going to get into how bad is Yale, for the purposes of this argument, presume that Yale is bad. And what Judge Ho has said is because Yale is bad, because it mistreats its conservative students, because it has double standards, I am no longer going to hire any law clerks from Yale. And the logic for this is that Yale derives a great deal of its prestige, as all law schools do, from the fact that they're able to place any uh, and disproportionate number of their students in very prestigious clerkships, which is the fast track to being a Supreme Court clerk, which is the fast track to being a, a law professor, which is enables a fast track to being a judge. This is sort of launching pad number two after law school, sort of the second stage booster, if you're going to use like SpaceX terms. This is the second stage booster is a clerkship. And what Ho is saying, I don't want to enhance or facilitate Yale's prestige by being part of their second stage booster for their students, for any of their students. And this has generated a firestorm, Sarah, a firestorm. I know where I'm on this. I'm super curious as to where you are. I want to read David Latt put together a nice rundown of the people on both sides of this and some of their thoughts. And David Latt with his traditional David Latt flair. Don't forget. (laughs) And nobody covers drama better than David Latt. (sighs) And Yale drama where he went. Oh, yeah, yeah. This is a this is a David Latt at his best. His uh, newsletter is called Original Jurisdiction. You should definitely subscribe to it. I do. So (laughs) in the you go ho camp. Uh, Senator Ted Cruz, Judge Ho has taken a courageous and important stand. Worth noting that Judge Ho replaced Ted Cruz as Texas Solicitor General. That's a fun fact. They've been friends forever and like friend friends, longtime friends. Okay, 
Professor Josh Blackman, who we've talked to before, David. Uh, How then should a judge assess a conservative applicant who chooses to go to Yale? This person knowingly walked into the trap house for the sake of an elite degree. I think it is reasonable for a judge to conclude that the applicant exercised poor professional judgment. That's insane. Okay, keep going. Okay. In the, oh no, he didn't. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, it's too funny. Um, Oren Kerr, who we've also had on this podcast. This boycott crosses an important line. It's the line between judges expressing their personal views in an effort to persuade, which is fine, and judges harnessing their power as government officials to create pressure on private institutions to further their personal agendas, which is not fine, in my view. Um, National Review's Isaac Shore, it's worth considering in the abstract whether a federal judge using the blameless as pawns in an effort to change the behavior of an institution to which they are connected, but whose malfeasance they are not responsible for, is a practice that conservatives should endorse. Um, and then this is worth, this was like sort of the, the easy shot from Professor Rory Little. It's absurd to retaliate against cancel culture by canceling somebody. (laughs) David, I do think it's important to note that Judge Ho did say that his new policy would only apply to clerks, to clerk applicants who are attending, accepting their Yale acceptance, whatever, for the, after this speech. Right. As in, if you're at Yale right now, even as a 1L, you can still apply to Judge Ho. And David, I think it's worth noting that Judge Ho is simply saying out loud what plenty of judges have been doing quietly for years, if not decades. Go look at how many Yale students have been hired by some judges that I could point to at some other point. Mm-hmm. Um, you'll see there are many years that go on in between without such hirings, including at the Supreme Court, maybe. Um, certainly in some of these appellate courts. And David, if you're picking students, clerks, based on any number of other factors, like their ideological bent, plenty of judges on both sides will only hire students who agree, align with them ideologically. Um, It's... uh, in that sense, it undermines Kerr's point a little. Like, yes, if you sort of phrase this as a boycott and using your power as a government official and all of that, I am very sympathetic to Kerr's point. But if you look at it from the much softer angle of they're only taking four people, they have any number of soft reasons why they are taking or not taking certain people. And that, yes, um, you know, for some judges, you must have Federalist Society on your resume. For other judges, you must not have Federalist Society on your resume. For some judges, they won't take students who went to top 10 law schools. They think that those students already have too much going for them. They're really looking for top of class at lower tier law schools to help those law schools and to help those students and all of these things. How is Judge Ho saying some of this part out loud? Such a wild change. I think the, the big change is the slamming of the door. So that, that to me is the, to no matter your individual merits, no matter your individual story, you, the door is being slammed in front of these chambers and then other people. And then a lot of the thought is we need more doors slammed shut. You know, that's the Josh Blackman argument that I really, that really bothers me, which what really bothers me is it's sort of of a piece of these uh, arguments that you often see now when someone makes different choices from you, um, that it is 
How dare they? How dare they? And somehow, <laughs> well, you've sold out. You've sold out. You know, and look, there are students there and there are individuals um, who hear about a difficult environment and view it as a challenge. They say, I want to see how I endure and hold up under adversity. Or they see it as a situation where they can maybe make a difference and offer a different voice. There are a lot of reasons aside from just cold prestige calculus that you would go to Yale Law School, even knowing it's somewhat toxic. Um, and toxic environments change. I mean, we have talked about this a million times on our podcast, but the law school, the Harvard Law School of 91 to 94 that I went to was not the Harvard Law School that you went to because it had fundamentally different leadership and it had a really different culture between those two periods of time. And so sometimes what you're doing is you're saying, I'm not just investing in what this institution looks like in a snapshot of its 350-year history of, that is right now, but I'm investing in the institution as to what it, what it has meant and will continue to mean for another 350 years. And so the, the squabbles of any given day or age of era tend to wax and wane as time goes on. So to presume, just to presume, regardless of other facts, that there's something wrong with a conservative Yale law student, I think is deeply unfair. Now, does it mean that a university that has a very intolerant far-left culture is necessarily going to then produce a lot of highly qualified conservative law clerks? Probably not. Probably not. Because just be the operation of choice, a whole lot of people who have a choice between – if you have a – if you're in Yale, if you've gotten into Yale, you're going to have – it's very r- rare to get into Yale and none of the other top fivers, top six – you're going to have a, a choice of one of the other top five or top six. And a lot of people are going to be repulsed by that environment and they don't want any part of it. And they're going to choose something else. So you kind of have a chicken and egg problem. You might have fewer clerks being hired out of Yale, uh, conservative clerks being hired out of Yale, because Yale's done a really good job of kind of telling conservatives, it's going to be a hellish three years here. This is going to be really hard for you. We're letting you in, but we're not going to like you for one second that you're here. A lot of people don't want any part of that. Um, so I, 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 my objection is to the slamming of the door, regardless of the personal, the facts of any given individual. And then some people, honestly, Sarah, don't presume the sophistication, uh, the, uh, the sophistication of your law school admittee. I would have had no clue right. that any of this was going on before I went to law school. Eggs, same. Same. I was so naive about even what the legal profession meant was. I never even heard of a clerkship. Like, what? I didn't know what the word appellate meant. (laughs) I was so... I didn't know how to pronounce that. Clueless. What I knew is I'd gotten into a dream law school. Um, I went and visited. It was super cool. David, do you know how I heard about the Federalist Society? How? Um, A guy who I went on a date with found out that I'd gotten into Harvard Law and was like, you should check out the Federalist Society while you're there. And I was like, what's that? And he's like, don't worry about it. Just like, like email when you get there and try to like figure out where they are on campus. I think Harvard will have one. And I was like, well, this guy, to be clear, is like the best looking guy I've ever been on a date with. He had like 17 inch biceps and like 
a neck that was larger than my head. And I was absolutely in love. He listened to country music and wore, you know, tight white t-shirts and I was just (laughs) totally sold. So if he told me to check out the Federalist Society, I was, I did it so that I could text or there wasn't text then like email him Mm -hmm. so that I had an excuse to email him and be like, Hey, I got in touch with the Federalist Society. Thanks for the great advice. Yeah. So anyway, what are you doing later? Like that's how I ended up in the Federalist Society. Yeah. I hear, I ended up in the Federalist Society in my first couple of years of law school, my first year of law school, because after I'd gotten in and after I'd said yes, I got a document from the law school that said, here are all our student organizations. <laughs> and I read it and I picked the two, the Law School Christian Fellowship and the Federalist Society that seemed to match my interests. And I went and the Law School Fel- Christian Fellowship at the time, there's like 1,400, it's a big law school, 1,400, 1,500 students. And there was like 20 of us in the room and then went to a FedSoc meeting and it was smaller uh, so yeah, different, different environment back then. But the idea that you're going to presume the sophistication of these admittees, that they're all up on all of the Twitter drama, when the reality is a lot of really smart parents and real, a lot of really smart folks are saying to bright young students these days, don't be up all, all up on the Twitter drama, that it's actually bad for you to be all up on all the twists and turns of every culture war fight that ever exists and keep your head down, study and learn about big things, not small things to then turn around and say, because you're not up on all the culture war drama, you're some sort of, you've sold out your values or there's something wrong with you. Um, and going to that school, I, th- I think is fundamentally unfair. Two things. One, I do wish the judge Ho had laid out criteria that Yale, for instance, could meet that would then change his boycott, right? He just said he was boycotting them until like Yale was different. Well, like, what does that look like? Because without sort of that laid out, um, it's a little hard to, to judge. Second, I really, really, really hope that Yale does change. Yes. Living up to their own written rules about free speech on campus because, and you and I have talked about this, David, it's not just hurting the conservative students in the traditional way where they are minoritified um, and, and put upon. It's hurting the liberal students because they never have to engage with ideas they don't understand. So they leave law school having no concept of how to argue the other side of a case and therefore are shocked at the arguments from the other side and shocked when their arguments are weak, frankly. But actually, it hurts the conservative students in a different way, David. Because I think it's making those um, those conservative students actually in a similar way so disengaged from the law school, from those debates, from those arguments, that unlike when I was at law school, um, where I felt like it was a really healthy minority position, and so I was constantly engaging with liberal students, getting the benefit of liberal professors um, arguing with me that I learned their language better than they learned mine, that's no longer happening because... There are so few students, they're getting so hunkered down, they have such a victim complex that they're getting more antagonistic, less interested in hearing and engaging with these ideas they disagree with too. So everyone is getting hurt at Yale and uh, and it's the law school's fault. It's the administration's fault. It's actually gonna be really easy to fix because no other law school has this problem at the same 
Right, exactly, exactly. That Yale does. So we know it's a Yale-specific problem. Yeah, I mean, I I have given a speech along these lines many times when I I tell the story of being shouted down at Harvard, of having people send me notes telling me I needed to go die, and I was a fascist because I was pro-life, being shouted down multiple occasions, the intolerance that led to this article called Beirut on the Charles that we've, again, a lot of this is, it's like greatest hits for advisory opinions listeners. But what I would say is that had a negative effect on me. Um, as much as I tried for it not to have a negative effect on me, it still had a negative effect on me. I, I graduated from law school with a lot of progressive friends, folks who d- disagreed with me that are close to me to this day. I mean, my goodness, our, our, uh, Fantasy Baseball League, which is definitely split conservative, liberal, had its 30th annual draft recently. So yeah, I definitely made progressive friends who are dear to me to this day. But that level of hostility created an impression for me about the left writ large um, that it took a long time. And let me put it this way, it unbalanced for me my anecdotal experience unbalanced for me my perception of the virtues of the two sides of the political coin. And so I left law school having endured a lot of that thinking, yeah, there are good folks who are progressives, but as a general rule, as a general rule, my side of the aisle has better ideas and in general, better folks, right? And that's a, that's a dangerous way of thinking. There's this interesting sociology study. I think you touch on some of these as well in your book, which is very good and people should get it. Divided We Fall. Yes. Um, in which being around people who are different than you will make you more tolerant. But, mm-hmm. A, you have to actually be around them and engaged with them in like sort of everyday activities. And B, it takes time. Uh, and so it's it's fascinating to look at an ex- these quote-unquote counterexamples like apartheid in South Africa and things like that, and think about why that didn't seem to follow the normal rule. Right. For instance, when you look at, um, at racial attitudes in the United States, the border states actually tend to have much less racist attitudes than some of the other states, which is very funny to me about some of these immigration arguments, by the way, where the blue states are calling the red states racist and the red states are the ones along the border who actually have the most tolerant racial beliefs, but whatever. Um, But it actually gets along to this whole idea that if a minority at the law school becomes so isolated that from the outside, it can look like they're interacting with each other. But in fact, in the inside, um, it, it is not that way at all that they've become isolated uh, from one another. So look, all that said, I think judge Ho, I think people are making a little too much out of this. A lot of, Judges do versions of this for all sorts of reasons. As I said, a lot do it on elite schools versus non-elite schools. Some preference elite schools, some de-preference elite schools. Um, So, yeah, I'm sure people in the comment section will have lots to say. Yes, and I'm I'm eager to hear what you think. But my issue is the slamming of the door. That's my issue. I'm fine with sort of the... The door is mostly shut because of experience and, and other kinds of hiring priorities, like, such as non-elite schools, et cetera. But you're still peeking around the edge there and you're saying, you know, you can prove me wrong here. You can prove me wrong. But anyway, we are already long. Before we go, 
I do want to do, we haven't done like in memorial in this podcast, True, but I think we should this week because it is rare that we lose someone who is such a legal giant as Lawrence Silberman. Uh, There are very few people who clearly could have easily been on the Supreme Court, had the exact career needed and the intellect and the drive and all of those things, um, like Judge Silberman. Um, And at the same time, there's Supreme Court justices who don't have nearly the career that Judge Silberman had. I know many of his clerks, they um, are grieving this week and just want to say that we're thinking about you. And in brief, I thought we would run through a little bit of his extraordinary career, David. Uh, he was the solicitor of labor, which is sort of like the solicitor general, but they argue the the labor cases, which there's a lot of. It's considered sort of that second um, solicitor general, if you will. He was the DAG, uh, the deputy attorney general at the Department of Justice. And David, just so we can run through when he was the DAG, that would be January 20th, 1974 to April 6th, 1975. Wow. There was some stuff going on. Yeah. He took over from Ruckel's house. So, blah. <laughs> uh, he was the ambassador to Yugoslavia in the 70s. Also a place with some things going on. And then, of course, he was a judge on the uh, D.C. Circuit. He served on FISA. He was the chair of the Iraq Intelligence Commission. And so many of his cases, David, I mean, he did the independent counsel violates the appointments clause. He did Patriot Act. He did uh, the District of Columbia's ban on um, the carrying of firearms, violated the Second Amendment. Oh, that's right. You might know that case as Heller. Yeah. He did Affordable Care Act. But most interestingly to me, because so many of those cases, the Supreme Court then sides with Judge Silberman is the one that we don't know yet. And that's New York Times v. Sullivan. Judge Silberman, we talked about this case actually at length on the pod at one point, David, uh, dissents saying New York Times v. You know, Mm -hmm. I get it. We have to apply New York Times v. Sullivan's standard. But the Supreme Court should overturn it, and here's why. And he lays out um, what I found in the end to be a very, very compelling case that our current defamation law simply doesn't work in an era where everyone's a publisher, where everyone can say stuff. And I think in the end, it becomes that fix to Section 230 in some ways and cancel culture Mm -hmm. and all of this that people want. If defamation were easier to to achieve instead of that sort of proof that the person knew they were lying at the time and did it just to get you, get rid of that. If they defame you, they defame you. And it doesn't really matter whether they knew they were lying or just didn't bother to check if they were lying. Um, and that then you might solve some of, I think, the underlying angst over cancel culture in Section 230 if there, if something were easier to do. And so I think Judge Silberman will be vindicated on overturning New York Times v. Sullivan. I don't think it's going to happen this term or next term, but I think um, he will have a long legacy in the law. And I think that's one that we haven't even fully uncovered yet. Well, that's worth a really good extended discussion uh, on your (laughs) Chimes v. Sullivan, but that's a lovely tribute to Judge Silberman. And, you know, it's, it's worth taking a moment to pause to pay tribute to people who've rendered such long and faithful service to this country. 
through some really trying times and with some really contentious issues and having done so with the utmost integrity. So uh, rest in peace, Judge Silberman. And by the way, do you know who was a clerk of Judge Silberman's? Who? Amy Coney Barrett. Oh, is that right? Interesting. Yeah, and so many others. He was so close to his clerks and his clerk family. I had one clerk tell me that when she uh, originally saw those Dos Equis commercials, the most interesting man in the world, she thought they were about Judge Silberman. Oh, that's fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's a perfect note to end on. Thank you guys for listening. Uh, Please go rate us. Please subscribe. Please check out thedispatch.com, and we'll be back on Thursday with a lot more to talk about. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely 